Today I'm releasing something different. This is actually a live stream from a new live stream I am doing on YouTube. I highly encourage you to check this out. I will be doing it weekly, ideally, and the content will only be on YouTube. What is magical about the live stream is that you can talk to the guests directly. I'll be taking questions from you to give to the guests and try to fill them out myself. These guests will all have been previous interviewees and are some fantastic talents that you won't always get to see. So please head on over to YouTube. So please head on over to YouTube. Look me up, Eric Hunley. I will also have a link in the show notes. And if you don't mind, subscribe while you're there and hit the little bell so you'll be notified when the next live stream starts. Now for this live stream, I have Chase Hughes. Chase Hughes is a behavioral engineer and is mixed up in all kinds of influence, all the way from body language to persuasion to full-on mind control. He's a great guest. I've had him on before, and I think you will love it. We've got Tyson in the house. All right, we are live. Awesome. Tyson Franklin, a, all the way across the world. So we can now say this is international for sure. It's international. I'm seeing a couple of people from London in here. There we go. So we got Europe, we got Australia. All right. How's everybody doing? This is my first ever live stream. It's with Chase Hughes. Chase Hughes does mind, mind control. <laughs> is this your first? Yeah. Okay, I, there's a story behind this, actually, because Chase reached out to me back in, like, November, and he said, hey, we need to do some video, and I'm not really huge on video, but somehow I think he used mind control on me, and now, <laughs> now we're doing video. I want to do a, a video of you and me putting down a couple bottles of wine and just just record whatever happens. We might do that. But first, I have to have control of it. Besides being alone with you in a room, I've met you. <laughs> You've met me. There were a bunch of cops in the room, though. Exactly. So I had I had protection. You never know what's going to come up. So let's get things started. A way I'd like to work this is I've had the great opportunity to interview you. Others have, too. But I want to put it out to the audience so they can ask you questions. And to even start us off, I have a question that came in earlier she's not going to be able to make the show but kelly martin asked this question on kelly instagram martin. and i'm putting it in here so <sighs> let's see that's too long to fit essentially she's asking about your pose in the picture that i used you're kind of doing the steeple thing yes yes and she wants to know hey What's that all about? She sees it okay. all the time. Yeah. So that uh, that hand gesture, that, that picture is from five years ago, I think. I was a younger man, as you can see in the photo. But uh, the, the, when someone puts their fingers together like this, this is something referred to, I think it was named by uh, a couple named Barbara and Alan Pease. They're a couple mm -hmm. of Aussies. Yep. Uh, they called this steepling. 
And you'll see this a lot with leaders in the room who steeple because they have a higher degree of confidence. So steepling by itself just means that a person's feeling confident, not arrogant, not self-absorbed or selfish or anything, but just kind of confident. And a good rule of thumb for someone doing a steeple uh, and not just in a photograph, but someone actually doing it. uh, Number one, take note of when a person does it. So what words were spoken to make that person feel confident? What was the situation that created confidence in that person? If you're in sales or business negotiation, or if you're in uh, a trial lawyer talking to a jury, it's important to know what makes that person confident so you can say it later in the conversation. And second, the higher the steeple is, the less likely that person is to hear you out and to kind of hear what you have to say. Mm, so if they're doing this, it's almost a block. It's kind of a block, but I mean, uh, down here is okay. So when it, when it comes up here to the face, uh, I would say the person's less likely to listen. Now, anytime you're putting something between your face and somebody else, isn't that kind of a blocking or protective gesture? Yes. So anytime yeah. we're kind of Bad. blocking our, our torso midsection is a little bit blocking off. Okay. Of course, it's contextual. Right. And that's part of the uh, theme with your uh, your t- uh, table of charts or chart of elements. Actually, what is it? Table of elements? Behavioral, Behavioral table, of- table of elements. It's a mouthful. Yeah. There you go. Obviously, it is for me. And you cover it in the ellipsis manual. And I believe from your training, you can't take any one particular indicator. You're looking for two to three before you even start following that track. Most of the time, yes, unless there's a contextual cue there. Uh, so if I uh, if I someone saw someone express contempt with their face, which is kind of a a one sided mm. smile, uh, which is also the only asymmetrical facial expression that's genuine. <laughs> but if I saw that immediately after somebody said Hillary Clinton, then I can probably assume that that one thing means one thing. Or Donald Trump. I'm not. I don't want to sure. make it political here, but. Uh, so if you see something to where a person like a, a single sided shoulder shrug where somebody just kind of shrugs one shoulder, like if you ask, it, it just means a lack of confidence in what somebody's saying. So like if you asked your friend, uh, oh, how do you like your new job? And they go, oh, it's, it's great. Oh, it's, it's <laughs> fine. So that yeah. would I mean, there's a lot of things that are that are in the moment that you can read in context. And that's kind of what I specialize in teaching and how to identify all the unconscious stuff that's going on. Now, some of that, like you mentioned contempt, some of that is um, micro expression, isn't it? Yes. Well, contempt itself is just a facial expression. Uh, micro expressions are I mean, the, the world experts say that they're a, not a, a good tool for most people to use. Uh, the, there's a book called Spy the Lie, written by former CIA interrogators and polygraph examiners. Uh, Philip C. Houston uh, was the guy who said this quote, and I, I don't remember the whole thing, but he said, it's, uh, there's no micro expression for deception. It doesn't exist. Right. And there's, there's only a few facial expressions, and uh, Philip Houston said that it's best left to the TV and movies. Okay. Well, I know disgust is definitely one of the listed micro expressions because they yeah. used it for uh, couples therapy 
and they would just slow down the camera. And when they got that disgust look between couples, it was the tell yeah. that they were going to be divorced within five years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this stuff is reliable when you're watching a video replay. Uh, you can slow stuff down. And there's not many people who are really great at spawning micro expressions. And there's just seven uh, that were seven basic micro expressions is happiness, sadness, anger, fear, surprise, disgust, and contempt. Right. And I got it wrong. I didn't mean disgust. I meant contempt. Contempt is okay. the couple killer. Yes. Because if they show contempt towards their partner, then it's done. Yeah. <laughs> Especially at the, in, in wedding photos. Oh, well, jeez. <laughs> That's the worst. Yeah. Okay. So while we're on truthiness, um, I did an interview recently, and I know you have listened to it because I actually ran it through you to determine if I was going to publish it. Oh, a yeah. Gentleman, <laughs> a gentleman named Doug Williams is on a crusade against the polygraph industry. Yes. So I'd love to talk about the interview, your thoughts on it, but I also want to, you know, turn it into the industry itself. Sure. I, uh, I mostly agree with Doug. Um, probably a hundred percent. I don't know all of his viewpoints, but I think the, the polygraph has never been a lie detector. It never was. And, uh, it should not ever be used for any kind of government screening. Uh, the polygraph is a con artists tool that police use. So like if you're a suspect and you take a polygraph with a police officer, you're going to be told that you've failed it every time, no matter what. Right. So, uh, they'll say, oh, there's a spike here or a spike there. Uh, but it it's it has helped to get confession, but the machine was not the thing that helped. The presence of the machine alone and just that there was a test done uh, would be the same thing. You could do the you could probably get equal results with one of those Scientology uh, e-meters that you hold with uh, both your hands and it measures your thetan level. I'm not sure what it is. It, isn't that kind of what they do? Um, it's similar. <laughs> just so the thing that Scientology uses is just a GSR machine. It stands for galvanic skin response. It just mm -hmm. measures sweat or the electrical conductivity of the, of the surface of the skin. Right. And that's part of that. Well, that's one component of the polygraph too, right? Yes. Okay. And his description then calling the polygraph, a rubber hose for cops isn't necessarily wrong then. I'd say it, uh, <laughs> it's a little <laughs> less uh, harsh, uh, but uh, the, the rubber hose is, is an example that he could use. And you know, I, that guy's been through a lot. He has been persecuted. Yeah. Uh, he's had his name drugged through the mud. He's been arrested for that stuff. Imprisoned. Yeah. And I can understand his anger. Uh, but uh, he's definitely on a higher level than me about trying to shut that, that stuff down. I don't care. It's it's a great tool, and it doesn't hurt anybody. Except for the unemployment. I, I do agree with him there. If people are losing their careers or they can't get a job, you know, they Absolutely. go get a degree, like somebody's a scientist, and then they try to work for a department of the government, and that's about the only place they could work, and now they yeah. can't. That sort of sucks. Yeah, I was talking about a law enforcement setting. Okay. So uh, any employer that uses a polygraph is using uh, con artistry uh, to fire their employees. A hundred percent. 
and generally it's um the examiners aren't necessarily reliable either yeah the examiners uh they go through a whole lot of training on interpretation uh but if someone ever trains you how to beat a polygraph you're not learning how to beat the machine you're you're beating the human so yeah. it's the person's interpretation of of the results that basically factor into the the actual results of the polygraph and i'm not an expert uh by any means i own a polygraph an antique one oh, uh, yeah. kind of like uh meet the parents it's the same same model from that movie do you have a daughter but, uh, i do <laughs> and that's gonna happen i see the future <laughs> But I think, uh, you know, polygraphs have their place uh, in in police work in that, you know, it can show that there's something there. But the reason they're not admissible in court is because they're faulty and they're just a tiny bit better than a coin toss, in my opinion. Okay. Well, we've got a question coming in here. Sales techniques. Any thoughts on them and how to close the sale successfully? That'd be about an eight-hour talk, <laughs> uh, and and I mean, and I'm not, you know, a lot of people just kind of throw that out, and like, oh, that would take too long to explain. Mm -hmm. uh, but let me let me recap what I can uh, to answer that question, Amir. And uh, Amir and I have been uh, talking on Instagram a little bit as well these past mm. couple of weeks. Excellent. So for Amir, when we're talking about closing a sale. It's the exact same as an interrogation in one regard alone, in that a lot of sales guys and a lot of interrogators treat the sale and they treat the interrogation as if they were picking a lock. Hmm. So just bear with me on this metaphor here. So that they, they are sticking this thing in, trying to raise and lower these pins to the right spots. So we see these sales that fail because the customer leaves and the interrogation, the guy can't leave the room. Mm. So 14 hours later, the guy confesses and the interrogator walks out. He's like, oh, I got him, <laughs> boys. It was 14 hours, but it took a while. So that's a lot of times this human interaction to get a person to do something or be compliant is kind of like a lock pick. And lots of sales training views human beings as little locks. But mm. if you could read nonverbal behavior like with the stuff that I teach and not just read a book and then say, Oh, I know how to do this, but practice it on a very regular basis. I know every single time there's an unconscious objection. There's a hidden uh, denial where I'm dealing with a customer who has apathy about this exact piece of my product. Cause I saw that facial expression. I saw those lips tighten up. I saw that body language all throughout the entire thing. And I know the psychological principles on how to overcome that in the moment. So mm. if I have in one sales call, if I've got 20 objections that that person is concealing or they're just too lazy to bring it up or voice their opinion, I know every single thing that I said that made them comfortable, relaxed, excited, happy, ready to make a decision. And I also know everything that they object to before it comes to the end of the end of the sale when I'm asking for a close or I'm, or I'm trying to ask a person to take some kind of action. I do that right away. So if I know what words they need to hear, if I know every single thing that they object to and I can kind of address that in my language, I don't have a lock pick anymore. I just have a key. 
Okay. So you're work. I don't like to use the term working them, but you're communicating with them at a deeper level the entire time versus yeah. worrying about your objective. Just worry about the moment. Yes. And if you think about it, if you took the, the top sales guy out of every fortune 500 company mm-hmm. and just did a micro analysis of who they are, we universally agree. It's not the guy with the most sales training. It's always the guy who can read anybody and who can communicate really well and has the social skills through the roof. So all we're doing is level up those skills that make the difference. Okay. What is your favorite technique from the ellipsis manual from a name? I cannot try. Maracacello. Maybe. Favorite technique from the ellipsis manual. This is, has to be something called negative dissociation and Negative dissociation is a, such a simple technique that it would fit on a bumper sticker, but it literally took me about 18 years to get it right. So here's all you've got to do. You take something, I keep, uh, this screen is mirrored for everybody who doesn't know. So I keep trying to gesture to the right and it's on your uh, left. So you take something the person doesn't like and attach it to something that you don't want them to have. So, Uh, Eric, I know you're a entrepreneur. Uh, You're a badass. You have a tremendous amount of discipline with your time, with how you schedule and structure things, even though you're called unstructured, you're a very structured man. So I know automatically you probably dislike lazy people. Automatically. Just lazy people who like expect things from everybody else. Mm -hmm. So I know that fact. So I'm taking something I know you probably don't like Or I could just say the word douchebags. That's universal. Everybody just kind of fills in their own definition for that word. (laughs) So you take that and assign it to something I don't want you to have. So I say that every one of these people has this quality. Mm. So here's how it would sound. I'm like, you know, Eric, it's, it's fascinating to me when I meet these people who are just, they are lazy they don't do anything and they expect everybody to do stuff for them. They expect everyone to give them something. You sit down and talk to these people. They have no ability to just stop and really focus in on a conversation. Hmm. So you've automatically agreed you don't have that trait because your head your head was even nodding. So we've I agree, like I make you kind of agree to the first part and tie the second part into it. And you kind of like, that's something like, yeah, that sounds believable. That's probably a true statement anyway. So what I'm doing is increasing that level of focus in the conversation. Okay. And that's really what negative dissociation is. And it works just, it works with anything. It's like every time I meet one of these douchebags, they have no ability to really open up in conversations. They're so closed off. So I've created you in the moment, a person to be more authentic and more open just by that one statement alone. How I changed your behavior permanently? No. And if you do this <laughs> to a guy who's a total asshole, <laughs> it'll change him in the moment and he'll go right back to being an asshole at the end of the conversation. But in the moment, it is a, a drastic change in most people. Okay. Is that not the same, but is it sort of related to... Um that distraction principle. I know Darren Brown talked about how, when he was being mugged, he was saying, yeah, the walls around my estate were only three feet tall. 
And the, the mugger's going, huh? <laughs> yeah. This is a completely different, totally different deal. Okay. So this is just designed loosely based on Bob Cialdini's consistency principle. Mm. That if, if you, you've started nodding your head, and I've, even if you don't nod your head, you agree that you are a certain way. Gotcha. And then, which means you kind of, as a matter of fact, agree to the other way, because you agree this one group is negative. If I say something negative about them, yeah, you'll agree to that. Here's a question following on that. Is it a gait or overall posture that you'll pick up on? What does that mean? I'm like the first I'm thing I see to, to read off. Like you notice that um, I'm slightly nodding my head or whatever. How do you know it's working? I think he's asking. Tyson, if you if I'm wrong, please. Okay. Well, hopefully Tyson can clarify. But I'm I'm saying like the one thing I'm looking for most of the time, if I do uh, see a, a human being, is whether or not they're willing to look at others. And second to that, I would I would note their posture and finally their gait and whether or not their arms are swinging in a normal way or they're constricted. What do you mean by looking at others? Just around them, or yeah, are they are they walking? I mean, it's one thing to have a phone and be buried in your phone, but if you're walking, most people don't hold their phone in front of their face. So, are okay. they willing to look around at others who are passing by them, or do they avoid eye contact with people? Okay, and what does it each tell you? Let's say they look at everybody, and nod. What does that mean? Uh, somebody who looks at somebody and nods is more open, more receptive, probably a little bit more suggestible. So somebody who has a power struggle in their life, who wants to be in charge of other people uh, and wants to be over other people, they will typically avoid eye contact, uh, contrary to what most people think. So hmm. the people who do make eye contact are more likely to be sociable. Okay. Okay. Next question. You're Adam. <laughs> Adam asks, you teach there are ways to identify and de-escalate situations. Is there a time when where escalation of emotion is a beneficial tool to use? And what would that look like? So uh, this, this actually is a long answer. So <laughs> I do have a class in de-escalation where we take uh, the, the person's human need that we identify. I teach a class that teaches you how to profile a person beyond what their friends and family know in six minutes. And, and Adam's been to that course. Hmm. So we tend to be more predictable when we're fearful, if you want to escalate fear. But if we're looking to get information out of a person, we need less fear and more uh, arousal. So physiological arousal. So if you listen to uh, two doctors argue about which which one is better, like two cardiologists arguing with each other about which one has done more surgeries, which ones were higher quality, the rate of incidence, all this kind of stuff. So we tend to think poorly uh, when we're excited. Okay. Uh, and, and I would say that's not very often uh, would you want someone in that state, even in an interrogation. I am focused on creating a calm state. But if you'd like to escalate somebody's emotional state, uh, you would take it away from yourself first. 
So mm -hmm. if you're if saying something directly about that person and say, I heard someone else said, or I read online that X, whatever, you want to remove it from yourself. Or alternatively, you talk openly about how afraid most people are of X. And that X would be the fears that that person has. So that's also part of that six minute x-ray class and is how to identify that person's fears that kind of govern their life. So I would vocalize, you know, so many people are afraid of, you know, being abandoned by their friends or people talking about them behind their back or just so many people are afraid that, you know, they can't protect. Uh, can you use theirs. that? Can you use it to flip a witness as an example? Like, would that be one time maybe egging them on or getting their emotion about, yeah, you know, he's in there talking about you. You you know you just know it. Yes. What what did that son of a bitch say? You know, just to get them to be less thoughtful. Yes, but I could get the same result without doing that. Oh, okay. so I could say, listen, uh, I'm here for you. I've talked to a bunch of your neighbors and a bunch of your friends, and a lot of people like you out there. And one of the reasons I wanted to come in uh, today is because I, I think you're a good guy, and I know you're trying to do the right thing. But I promise you, your friends in there talking right now. And uh, we're getting a lot, lot of information out of them. And, and there's not much I can do for you. Because if I leave this room, uh, I can't help you anymore. Okay. And I really, I'd like to help you. Okay. So you, you're going for the uh, friendship angle. Okay. Yeah. Back to the gate. Um, Tyson confirmed that this question uh, ties to what he was asking. I read an article saying that psychopaths look at people's gate as a cue to select victims. Yes. What would you say that we can gather from a person's gate? Uh, the, the, the one thing I look for in gate is whether the arm swing is restricted and whether or not the, the skull is above the heart. So like head over heart, heart over pelvis. Oh, <laughs> like posture. Yeah. I actually learned that from a yoga teacher, but okay. I mean, that's that description. I mean, and I would look for uh, are the head, chest and, and pelvis all kind of in alignment. So, and, and that would tell you the person's level of confidence and their level of extroversion. So if they had a big arm swing, we know that they're probably comfortable in their own skin. They're probably a, mm -hmm. a, a more fun person to talk to. Somebody who is a little bit uh, insecure may have a muted gait. Their stride length is shorter Typically, the people that psychopaths select, uh, according to the research, the stride length is around uh, 20 inches. Hmm. Their heads are sludged forward and their their arm swing is restricted. And I think the average arm swing is 13 front and nine to the rear. Okay. I, I guess that makes sense. I feel like people, well, some people are obviously almost look like a victim. Like you can just look at them and say, oh, boy. Make sure you hang out by that person because they're going to be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a uh, Gavin stone. I guess he uh, knows you He's looking forward to beers in in London. Do you have any funny oh. stories where you have misread anyone or anyone else you've trained who has misread signals with humorous results? Yes. I, uh, <laughs> I've never admitted this on any platform, even to my friends. So here don't worry, nobody's watching. <laughs> oh, good. So we had, uh, oh man, we had 
a friend of a friend whose husband uh, left the house. She was jobless, penniless, shut off the power, shut off the water. And it was like six doors down. And I'm in a, I'm in a nice neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find out like this is happening. And I went over there and knocked on the door. I was like, hey, do you need like a shower? Do you need, do you want to come over to our house and take a shower? So eventually uh, she said, let, let me stay for a week. And, uh, you know, I talked to her, did a little interview and I didn't ask her the one question I should have, but in the end, um, there was a, a bottle of Adderall missing from the uh, bathroom and, Mm. uh, the kid's money was missing. Mm. So there was money taken like from the kids, like stash, which did get returned. I spoke to her and, and got everything returned, but uh, I, I misread that completely. And it was a older woman, probably forty-eight year old woman. So even as a reader, you're saying that you're susceptible. Everybody's susceptible to be suckered. Oh hell yes, hell yes. So we and we and I tell you, there's no body language expert, there's no behavioral expert in the world who will say that they can read everybody. Well, maybe there are, but they're, they're bullshitting you if they say that. <laughs> What's a good, that leads to another question, actually, I have. Sometimes the deeper you get trained into something, the more vulnerable you can be because you lose the beginner's mindset. What are some traps an expert can fall into or blind spots? So one of the big traps that I see regularly is... Uh, something called truth bias. Mm. So when we encounter a person that is somebody that we like or that we love, you know, we have a wife uh, confronting her husband about a, a Tinder app that she found on his phone. She will likely ignore all of the bad signals, all the deception signals, because we very, very subconsciously, way below our awareness, we want to think that we're with people who are honest and trustworthy. So makes sense. Um, in that scenario, we're also likely to suffer truth bias. If the person looks like us, if they're the mm. same race as we are, and even this is proven if their name starts with the same letter or sound as our own name. And the best way to mitigate this is to plan the conversation in advance. There's no vaccination uh, for truth bias, but I would plan in advance and just have a little, even if it's on a note card or a sticky note, plan what we're looking for, the questions I'm going to ask and make sure I'm going to, I'm going to actually look into the room. The moment I go into the room, will I likely have a truth bias? And I will have that front and center of my consciousness uh, so that I could probably mitigate some of that. That's fascinating. And I, I have, um, I'm not trained like you. That's why I hang out with people like you. I've always had the ability to read people pretty quickly and pretty deeply. I mean, dig some really odd stuff out of them, but the more I get to know them, the less ability I have. It's like the more they're a stranger to me, I'm able to just pick up a lot of nuance and things like that. But the deeper I get to know them, I'm wondering if that's a similar scenario as the truth bias, because I'm establishing a relationship and building trust and things like that. 
uh, that's absolutely truth bias. And we get more comfortable. So we're, okay. we're not, uh, we're not on the whole time. You know, like you think about like with your friends, you're not monitoring yourself. Exhausting. We're, we're, we're doing less monitoring of the conversation. Oh, it suck. I mean, Think about yeah. that. I mean, you'll be the most, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's latest book talked about that too. You'd be the worst cretin in the room. Nobody yeah. would be able to stand being around you. You'd hate everybody. You'd have to lock yourself in a room. You get suspicious. And that's uh, the only, the only problem. Uh, there was a great book. It was called um, Talk to Strangers or Talking to Strangers from Malcolm Gladwell. Just came the out, only yeah. problem I had with the book uh, was that he didn't account for the people who had those behavioral attributes in a subconscious way. So like they've hmm. done it, I, like I've been doing it. I have the 10,000 hour rule, also a Malcolm Gladwell quote. On yeah, that, he behavior. messed that up. By the way, he messed that one up because it's Anders Ericsson. And he forgot to okay. mention it's deliberate practice. Not Because if you swing a golf club for 10,000 hours and you're not really concentrating, it's useless. Right. Yeah. So anyway, sorry to interrupt it. Yeah, go, oh. go on. Yeah, but that's that's kind of what that is. So if somebody has uh, been doing it with that deliberate practice for a very long time, then we can we make different accounts for it. But we interview people that are cops or FBI agents who don't get much sure. of that training, and you'd be shocked to learn how little training police and uh, federal agencies get in all of this stuff. It's really bad. You mentioned psych, um, psychology degrees don't even do it. Yeah, yeah. So if you like, if you go to Harvard and get a PhD in psychology, you'll spend like six minutes studying nonverbal communication. Which just seems crazy because one of our mutual friends, Scott Rouse, learned it from his father, who was a doctor. Yeah. yeah. And you would think that in medical situations, you would absolutely want to have that because, well, one, everybody lies. It's like, Eric, do you drink? Eh, a little. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Eh, a, li a little bit. So it's an invaluable thing to actually diagnose a patient or, or talk to them, and then you don't even necessarily have to confront them or corner them. You just kind of be like, oh, okay, yeah, so a lot, <laughs> or, or whatever it is. It's really true, really true. And if, if a patient likes a doctor, it reduces malpractice suits by like 80%, something like that. Unbelievable. Well, it makes sense. Because one, a lot of malpractice suits, I think, are kind of on the edge anyway. Like, if you like the person, you wouldn't suspect that as being malpractice. Mm -hmm. But if you don't, well, that son of a bitch probably did whatever. And that uh, I got sepsis because they're unclean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so next question from uh, Miko Mangay. Michelle. Uh, Michelle, okay. Sounds like somebody you know. Um, I don't know what that is, fractionation and sales. So fractionation is a hypnosis term, uh, and I have no – I would love to credit the author, uh, but I can't. <laughs> I don't know who it is. But fractionation <laughs> basically means uh, – fractionation originated as a hypnosis technique and I think Dave Ellman was the guy who made it more popular. And this is where you're kind of, uh, you put someone in a trance, you have them open their eyes, kind of wake up, and then go back down. Oh, okay. And they go from wake to trance faster. 
So this you do that as a repetitive process. But in conversation, the word fractionation re, re, just relates to uh, ups and downs most of the time. So fractionation okay. in sales and fractionation in anything means that there we have a conversation starts and then it go, you know, we talk about something really great. And then some guy mentions, oh, yeah, my aunt has cancer. And the and like the, the line mm -hmm. goes down and then it kind of comes back up and you're talking about taking your dog to the groomers and how much it costs. Then it goes way back up and you talk about like a cruise that you just went on and the, the other person responds with a great vacation they had and it goes up. So, so I would say fractionation should be in every conversation that you have. Uh, and if you're a good conversationalist, you like other people and you're an open person, the negative aspects of conversation to where it kind of goes up and down just happen naturally. It's not, it's not some uh, tactic that you have to force. I, I honestly believe that it's, it's a real natural thing that happens in any good conversation. I, I had a, about a six minute conversation with Bill Clinton once. Hmm. And it was. Incredible. I heard it was amazing. Yeah. So it was on a, a Navy ship. Our ship was out in the Middle East. He was out in the Middle East, came on the ship. He was asking me about the, the I was the navigator of a guided missile destroyer. So he's asking about like the the food on the on the boat, and I was talking to him. The Navy food is actually very good to me. I don't know if anybody else likes it, but I do. But he kind of just talked about his aunt, and then he mentioned his aunt has passed away, and how she made a grilled cheese sandwich, hmm. and it was the best grilled cheese sandwich he had ever had. And he probably spoke for five minutes about this sandwich. And it was the most interesting conversation I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I've heard that about him in multiple places that, uh, you know, no yep. matter where anybody is politically meeting him is just, he's one of the it's best conversationalists world. ever. Yeah, he really is. He, he really is. But that was it. The conversation started with me being excited. And then he talked about how his aunt died and then came up back to <laughs> grilled cheese recipe. Perfect. Well, this is a great follow-up from the uh, earlier one about what was your biggest error? What was your most amazing body language profiling deduction? The kind okay. of moment where you thought, wow, I'm like Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. I do this every day. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> I think... One of the most amazing I've ever done is maybe interview, probably interviewing a nanny okay. uh, before that was going to babysit. And we would ask the nanny a, a series. And I continuously throughout the interview made the questions more and more exposing to where it ended up with the question, what's the most severe punishment you've ever had to deal out to a child? And, mm -hmm. There was, uh, she talked about something that was extremely inappropriate, and, but there was deception even then that she was holding back more information. Wow. And every once in a while, uh, I will spot someone on an airplane uh, just six weeks ago, a couple months ago. Uh, there's a guy on uh, Delta Airlines flight 
to Nashville, Tennessee. And um, he was kind of walking, walking up the aisle and I noticed nonverbal cues. And I said, that guy is extremely anxious and might be thinking about committing suicide while he's on the plane. What? So I stood up and he was massive. Like he was the size of the incredible Hulk and had less body fat than me. Oh, good. It was, man, it was scary. And I had to approach this guy and ask if he was okay. The flight attendants came over. He said he was all right. I took him to the, the front of the cabin. They kind of, pulled the little drapes and I sat down with this guy and I was able to talk to him. And a couple of times we've spotted some human trafficking stuff going on and that was uh, flying mm. out of Atlanta. Okay. Do you ever do work with deliver fund? I've never heard of it. They're an organization. We'll talk offline on it, but they're kind of an anti trafficking organization. They have undercover people, things like that. It's private organization, charity. For stopping trafficking. All right. So what are some useful techniques other than matching, mirroring, tactical empathy? Somebody's read Christopher Voss um, that a therapist can use to create a favorable outcome for the client using behavioral engineering principles. Wow. Man, that's a lot. I could, I could go on for about 14 hours on that question. So let me give uh, a, <laughs> Let me give two quick, really cool tips here. Um, I hesitate to say pro tip. <laughs> I think that's overused, but I, I'm going to use it anyway. Here's a pro tip. All right. Number one, pay attention to what types of pronouns the person uses that you're speaking to. And a pronoun is just I, she, we, he, it, our, their, us, them, they. All those are pronouns. Mm-hmm. So we typically fall into three pronoun categories in a conversation. And this is self, team, or others. Self, mm. team, or others. And in this regard, with a pronoun, what we're looking for is how they speak and the language they use. So let's, let's go back to the example we used earlier. You ask somebody, how do you like your new job? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, the job's great. You know, I got my own parking space. I've got a corner office. The medical benefits are really good. I've got a, a really nice desk. It's only a 10-minute drive from my house, and I get off probably around 345 every day. It's fabulous. That's a self-focused pronoun user. Mm-hmm. So that's also the way their brain works. So if you think of an interrogator or a psychologist, um, we tend to not use the language that these people are using. Okay. And this is like once it, with my six minute x-ray course, and I, I'm not trying to shamelessly plug this course, but the, we're, we're figuring out where all the pins are inside the lock. So okay. let's think of an interrogator who's talking to somebody who is a self-focused pronoun and he's using team pronouns the entire time. And then 13 hours into the interview, he accidentally uses a self-focused pronoun to describe like what's going to happen if he confesses and how it's okay. And he gets a confession. And then he goes, wow, it took a long time to crack that guy. Mm. No, it didn't. So the other type of pronouns are team and others. So in response to the same question, oh, how do you like your new job? Somebody would say, man, everybody there is fantastic. 
I get to work with a lot of great people. The management is fantastic. Just going through HR and meeting everybody, I was thrilled to be working at this company. And everybody even goes out on Thursday nights and hangs out with everybody. Boom. That's team. So that means I'm going to structure my language in the same way as my patient or my client or whomever hmm. or my, my jury, so to speak. And the other's response would sound like, you know, how do you like your new job? And the person says, well, the new job is absolutely great. The company has us going out to all these other companies and talking to our counterparts to try to get some mentoring out there. We even have networking events. And the company that I love working for the company because they make such a huge difference in the world. They volunteer at the local communities. They uh, give like 600000 uh, a year to the local animal shelter. So that everything is focused on helping others. And the team-focused people aren't just focused on like their team at work. They could be someone talking about their family more than themselves, for instance. But that's just like three little things you could do right there or just one technique, I guess. Okay. And, and you're not judging necessarily anybody for any particular thing. Just people are wired a little bit differently. Yeah. Self-focused pronoun doesn't mean they're selfish. That's just the descriptions they like to hear, the words they like to hear. And that's how they like, that's how they view the world. So if your language matches how they're viewing the world, then you get more agreement. I had an observation about that um, recently because my wife is an only child and both of her parents are only children. And people who are only children act differently towards others and I think are often more self-focused, as you were describing, than those who have a bunch of siblings. Have you ever seen that kind of thing? A hundred percent. I absolutely agree. And it's almost to the point where when I hear someone's pronoun usage, I can kind of pretend to be a mind reader and I could say, I, I'm guessing you you didn't grow up with any brothers and sisters. I'm getting a, I'm getting a feeling here. <laughs> and they're like, wow, how did you know that? Okay. Well, now this one I know you want to talk about. Your upcoming novel, Phrase 7. Yes. Is it phrase or phase? I thought it was phase. Phrase. 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 Oh, the phrase. Okay, like a key phrase. I got it. Yes. So uh, the novel is actually sitting on the computer that I'm talking on right now. I've been, I type it up on this, this big deal. I type from like 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. every day on this book. And... Uh, the book centers around a secret organization called HIG, H-I-G. Mm -hmm. And nobody knows what HIG stands for. Well, you as the reader won't until the end of the book. Uh, and it's, it, it's a society of people who use persuasion and influence on a very extreme scale to stop chemical weapons, stop biological weapons, human trafficking, nuclear weapons, all kinds of stuff around the world that was founded in 1569 and still exists today. And uh, the founding member, along with all kinds of other unexplainable mysteries from real history, so it pulls in uh, actual devices from history. And uh, hmm. they're a phrase, one of their, their phrases to kind of compromise another person uh, goes missing, and they're on a race against the clock to find it before 
a extremely horrible, catastrophic video gets released on the internet. What drove you to write the book? Uh, just I can, when it's fiction, I can I can uh, have a little more freedom to write stuff. If okay, you know so I mean. is it a to correct real life? Like you can make things happen the way you want them to, versus what you normally see. No, it means I can write about subjects I would normally not be able to. Mm, okay. Nice. Back to it. How do you spot a dangerous person in a public place? Um, I don't know what kind of dangerous we're talking about here. Well, potential uh, so, dangerous. I don't know. That could yeah. be volatile, I guess. It could be. So the the big things we're looking for with dangerous people in a in a public place is a digital flexion, which is the fingers coming towards the palms. And I didn't say fist. I said digital flexion. So the their fist, their fingers will be closer to their palms. Mm. Oh, not not in a fist. The second would be that the humerus, this bone right here, would stick closer into the body. Okay. They would also take up less space than most people. They're typically not making eye contact with anybody. Most of the times when there is a mass shooting and it's been on recording, the shooter, if they stood still at all, uh, would sway back and forth and change the weight from one foot to the other about 20 seconds before the event started. Mm. Okay, that makes sense. All right, and what do we have? Um, we've already gotten that one. How do you account for an individual who has an injury or unusual idiosyncrasy? Uh, obviously, you can't speak, but um, idiosyncrasies when observing the behavior as they may not act normal. How yeah. do you account for that? Anything that's repetitive or that looks habitual, I automatically ignore it. Okay, so you need to spend some time with them then to get a baseline to know that. Or does it just depend on the person? Well, if they're if they're doing it from the get-go, that I know that that's probably a behavior that they're doing on a regular basis that has nothing to do with the interaction. And if the behavior continues through the conversation in a repetitive way where there's no distinct cause or context for that behavior to take place, then I'll just ignore it. Okay. So if you're looking, if you're reading behavior in clusters, those ticks uh, don't really matter that much anyway. Well, this is almost a perfect follow-up on it. What about um, using behavioral engineering techniques with autism? I had a very, very autistic person standing here in, in my office today. And it was a person who's pretty high on the spectrum, I think is the, is the terminology. And I've never tried to use any of this stuff with people with autism. Uh, but one thing I thought would be great because this, uh, the person I met today, uh, his name is John, a wonderful, wonderful human being, um, can analyze everything and get to the point where they're, he can, he has a memory that is like incredible. Hmm. Like so a I rain thought, man type of thing almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a gift from God. So I thought autistic people have, typically have a uh, some trouble reading emotions. Mm -hmm. But what if I asked him to memorize the behavioral table 
And then I gave him a series of videos. And just when this muscle goes up, you write CT on the video. You make a little CT flash on there. So like you're like doing these cool videos mm-hmm. that, that show all these behaviors. And he may not be able to interpret them initially. But I think having uh, having him do that would really expand, you know, what he's doing if, if he got into it. But I was just kind of musing about that with his uh, his sister who had brought him over today. I hate to use the term faking till you make it, but it kind of would be that where he could he doesn't understand the emotions necessarily, but he can pick up on the cues and react to it until over time maybe he internalizes it and then starts yeah. to genuinely feel. Is that your theory? Yeah. That's I mean, that's what I was just kind of musing about. But I I don't know how the techniques work on people with autism. So you have another book, Taxonomy of Human Obedience. When's that coming out? It's out. It is. Where do you it's a it? one-page document. Oh, okay. So it's like the behavioral table, but it's a massive kind of dissection of how human beings kind of become compliant in a conversation. And that is something we give out at the seminars. Unfortunately, like, my life's work was that behavioral table of elements. And I give that away for free already. Uh, so I, I got to hold something back for the seminars. So those <laughs> people get the money's worth, but it is oh. out. And everybody who attends any course I teach gets, gets a copy of it. Okay. So it's saying here, you wake up every morning about 4am. What advice or knowledge can you share on sleep? Uh, I'm definitely not the guy, guy to ask on sleep. I, I just spent a grand on a one of those beds that will kind of lift you up, you know, like you you can yeah. raise your head and legs and, and do that. And it has an alarm clock app on the bed. And you can make the bed like pick you straight <laughs> up in the morning. Shake the hell and, out of you. <laughs> yeah. So I have massage turn on and like sit straight up at 4 a.m. Okay. But I'm so used to it. Like, I hope you even if I alone. don't set an alarm clock. I, <laughs> I'll wake up at four. Oh, good Lord. I hope you sleep alone because <laughs> my spouse would kill me. <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and close this out. This is a perfect uh, ending question. What are some basic things a successful profiler must notice in everyday life? Wow. You, uh, they did say basic. Uh, Maraca Cello, hit me up on Instagram. I'll give you some more stuff you can read privately, but I'll give you some, some basic stuff here. As you're walking around, who is making eye contact with other people? Not just you, with other people. How are postures tilting towards or away from people in conversation? So who's more interested? Where are feet pointing? in conversation. When a woman's sitting down, does she position her purse in a way that anybody could grab it, which means she might be trusting of others more open, or does she zip her purse up and stick it kind of behind her? Does a woman guard her purse? And I'm looking for a lot of those kind of behaviors. And in conversations, blink rate is really important. This is how often a person blinks. And the more often you blink, the more stressed out you are, and you start blinking less, that means you're more focused, comfortable, kind of checked into the conversation. And the average is 21. So like the last time you watched a great movie, your blink rate was probably a six. And like for me, that was probably like interstellar. My blink rate was 
like probably a zero. It felt like <laughs> watching that movie, uh, except for the part when it made me cry. But like during the math part of my SATs, uh, which I don't do math, uh, my blink rate was probably a 70. <laughs> and that's something that is an instantaneous thing you can see in the moment. Every single conversation you have, even as a public speaker, like when I go do keynotes or anything like that, I'm looking around the room, I'm making eye contact. If I just count the number of blinks I see in 15 seconds and multiply that by four, I have the exact numerical blink rate for the entire room and I know how interested they are. And if the blink rate goes up, I'll just change the slide. Mm. So you don't need to count how often a person's blinking. I would just say, is it fast or slow? Is it speeding up or slowing down? Okay. So just a quick tell, not too, uh, don't dig too deep into it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to slip one more in and All right. it's because our friend Tyson who joined us, it's about his podcast and your appearance. You state a significance as one of the three primary needs. Why did you switch admiration for significance? I think it's the word just better describes the internal quality. Uh, significance is something that is more effective. And I have a long list. So the needs map will probably change once a year based on all the research we just added a new cell to the behavioral table of elements, and it took me 13 months of research to get that one cell added because each one of those cells has at least five um, academic research papers behind mm. it. Uh, so the significance and all that stuff and the significance and needs map, that whole thing, ha I have to go with my gut. So well, the significance is, do I make a difference? Admiration is, do people look up to me? I was going to say significance is internal. Admiration would be external. Yes. Right? Right. So it's the need to feel admired and the need to feel significant. Well, Am I still here? Yep. You robot it, but... Okay. Looks like, it looks like the system is telling us, okay, uh, your time is limited. Really so quickly. Significance is just a bigger lever and it's easier to grab. Makes perfect sense. And for everybody who's watching, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. Um, we might be able to get Chase back. Not sure. But um, if you can, subscribe, hit the notification bell. And Thanks, I will guys, be bringing some other people on, like Scott Rouse will be joining us and other people. So I think this is really fun. And Chase, thank you so much. I'm glad that you manipulated me into doing this. Me too. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. So there you have it. I hope you really enjoyed that as much as I did. Once again, please head over to YouTube, look up Eric Hunley, or click the link in the show notes. Hope to see you next time.